Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's the fascinating syndrome with the very weird name, Munchausen by proxy. The first time I heard it decades ago, I thought for sure it was made up, right? It sounded ridiculous, but sadly, it is not. And now it is back in the news because of the very well-known case of a woman named Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Now, is this all just sensationalism or can this case teach us about a very real syndrome? Well, Dr. Mary Sanders is the Director of Child and Adolescent Psychology at Stanford University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. I did want to correct something. I'm not the director. I'm a clinical professor at Stanford. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, first of all, what is, no Munchausen by, what is Munchausen by proxy? <laughs> Certainly. Yes, Munchausen by proxy. Um, it is an unusual name. It was uh, based on a, a Baron von Munchausen, who was a baron in the Turkish wars, who allegedly traveled and told false stories. And the, coin, the, the term was coined by Roy Meadows to describe patients that he saw that um, told tall tales, but in regards to their child's medical. Um, and basically, Munchausen by proxy, it is child abuse. It is when a caretaker intentionally falsifies illness on behalf of a child, usually, of course, a mother on behalf of the child, causing the child to appear ill or disordered. And what we see is the motivation, for the most part, appears to be to gain admiration and attention for being the parent of a sick child. I know that this this syndrome really struggled to get public acceptance, right? Because people thought, well, this just kind of seems, it seems outrageous, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, absolutely. And it does seem hard for people to believe that this happens. And it, it, it is hard, I mean, to think that a parent would intentionally harm their child. Uh, but unfortunately, this is the case. Uh, and I know that, uh, as you mentioned, Gypsy Rose recently was released from prison and is trying to uh, get the word out that this abuse happens and, you know, to notice that. Okay, that's a good point then. So is it still a challenge for the system to recognize this, for, for doctors to see this and nurses and healthcare practitioners to recognize this and see, oh, that's what's happening here? Absolutely. Um, These parents are very, very convincing. And um, they're very able to, you know, present a false story that is believable. Um, And at the, you know, at the same time, physicians are trained to listen to parents and to trust what parents tell us. I mean, basically, we get a lot of history from parents. And if a parent is intentionally falsifying, then we're likely to come up with a false diagnosis and false treatment. What do the parents get out of this, Dr. Sanders? You know, mostly what, and of course, well, we never really know motivation unless someone tells us what it is. So we can only assume from what we see. And certainly sometimes we'll see parents that do seek, um, 
like trips and money, uh, GoFundMe, that sort of thing. In the case of Gypsy Rose, of course, we also saw Habitat for Humanity built their home. But for the most part, what we see is that a parent is seeking attention uh, and admiration. And a lot of times when we are able to evaluate these parents, we do find that they have personality disorders that uh, may make them more susceptible to almost being sort of addicted to attention and almost feels like they can't get filled up enough. Right. Okay. So do we have an idea of how common this is? Uh, we don't because for the most part, Munchausen by proxy abuse is under-recognized as we can see from certainly from Gypsy's case and underdiagnosed. We do have, we have seen it identified across the globe, 24 different countries, um, and of course, I think that, you know, it is considered rare. Hopefully it is rare. Uh, but my, my fear is that it's not as rare as we would hope. Mm, what is the protocol then for trying to diagnose this? Um, basically, of course, first of all, considering it as a possible diagnosis. And then we look for, uh, you know, why is the parent bringing the child in for over-medicalization? You know, sometimes we'll have an anxious parent that, it's just worried or a delusional parent. So it may not be intentional falsification. So in order to identify falsification, we really need to get all the medical records and, and see if it exists. Um, example is I had a parent that told me their child was born premature, four pounds. I get the birth records in, you know, eight pounds, 10 ounces. So, you know, that's, that was a, a, a definite falsification. And that's what kind of thing we look for when we examine and analyze the records. Does it does it fit? Does basically, does what, what we're, be, we're being told, you know, does the story fit the clinical findings? And also, we, of course, would do lab tests if, in fact, it is a disorder that can be tested. Right. The medical records are key, aren't they, Dr. Sanders? Because they can tell you, was there movement from doctor to doctor? Like, on, if, mm-hmm. if, if there's chaos kind of in the medical records, that would tell you a lot. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's where we fall down is not getting the medical records and doing an appropriate analysis. So, but is it easy to access that? Like doctors are in a hurry. They're seeing a lot of patients. Is that kind of what people who have this syndrome are counting on? Absolutely. And of course, in the case of Gypsy, what she said was that the records had been lost in Katrina. I I had a similar situation where a parent told me that the physician had retired and their office had burnt down, and it turns out that was not the case. And so, yes, we do need to pursue and get the records. It's a little bit easier now with some electronic records being more easily uh, available. Right. So let me ask you, with a case like this Gypsy Rose Blanchard, which is all over the news, and it seems like everybody's talking about it, is that helpful to the idea of people understanding what Munchausen by proxy is, or do you think, no, this is just a sensational news story? Uh, Well, probably both. Um, But I do hope, and and actually I do believe that Gypsy has made a difference. Uh, And and the reason that I say that is that, you know, we have a, a group of us are on a national committee and, you know, we get calls. And basically we have gotten more calls of people that have, you know, said, hmm, I wonder if this is going on in my family. I'm noticing this and this. Uh, also, uh, individuals who have come to terms in recognizing they may have been a victim. Uh, we have a, uh, a um, MunchausenSupport.com is a website that they can go to and get support. Well, thank you very much for explaining it to us this morning.
Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Yeah, that's Dr. Mary Sanders, clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford Medical School, talking about Munchausen by proxy syndrome. You've probably heard of it before. It sounds kind of bizarre. You're like, how can this be real, right? It's the idea that parents are kind of falsifying their child's health problems as a way to get attention for themselves. That's the simplest way to do it. But with real health consequences and trauma for that child. It is child abuse, as Dr. Sanders pointed out there. And this case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, you've probably seen it in the news, is probably the highest profile case that we have ever seen before. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some money this morning, shall we? Our contributor, Scott Shantz, is with us. We wanted to update you on a bet Seems quite foolish now when I think about it that we started way back when, but good morning, Scott. Hi. How you doing? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am well, thank you, Simi. Pretty good this morning. We were pretty enthusiastic about this, what, a month ago when we talked about it? Yes. I think we all had high hopes of how uh, great this was going to be for our bank account. It was going to create this sort of internal uh, competitive thing that also boosted oh, each other, this so sort of much. like, you know... Uh, yeah. So what we're doing is we embarked on in the January for 2024 a no discretionary, like really, really cutting back on discretionary spending. And we made it a bit of a contest for the four of us who work on the show in the morning. A few other people around here joined us as well to say how long we could go without spending money on the incidentals and the extras that we e- so easily do every single day. Yeah, like nothing unnecessary, like no right. going to Starbucks, no going out for lunch, no quick, uh, oh, I'll just pop into this store on my walk home and just see what they have. Like yes. all of those little extra things that you don't need. Grocery shopping was fine. Right. Like things that you need that you need for your house, like that's all fine. Just no unnecessary spending. Right. And so you're right, though. My bank account has noticed my bank account, there's more money in my bank account for sure. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. There is more money in my bank account, which was the goal. Right. But there's three of us in this right now on the morning show. One person was out literally the day we talked about it. Correct. Bianca. Uh, Bianca, our producer, who we knew was going to be the first person out. So that was not a surprise. In fact, an hour after we talked about it on the show, she walked by me and I said, where are you going? And she said to Starbucks. And I said, uh, hello. You know, you can't do that. That's part Didn't seem to stop her. So she was out that day. We are still continuing, but here is, I'm, I think I'm going to be the next person out here as hard as I'm trying. Really? Okay. I just, I'm getting to the point where it's, it's, it's changing everything I do on a daily basis. I'm not going for a walk because I feel like I might see something that I want to buy and be tempted. Uh, And now I'm fairly, we're arguing with each other over if we're even allowed to replace things in our house. Yeah. Greg actually has been really good about that. Good. He's been like texting that- us to say like, hey, the the microwave broke. He Can I replace of, it? He ran out of body wash and filled it with water rather than let us lo- let, let us win this bet. I don't think but, that's good. I think he's t- he's taking us all over the <laughs> Like body wash is a necessity. Yeah, please and buy the body wash, yes, Greg. But he's doing it out of principle <laughs> just, just to show so- us. Also, it's turning things a little bit awkward at my house. So here's the deal. We have like a family Amazon account, right? Because we all share it. And so you put things in the cart. Maybe you stick it in safe for later. But occasionally I've had to order something and I go in there and I see, oh, so-and-so has uh, this item in the cart. They must need it. I'll just order it for them with my order. 
So I've had something in the cart for a week now. <laughs> I keep hoping somebody else in my house will say, oh, mom really needs that. I'll just order. I'll add. No, they just keep bypassing it. Right, right. And it's still sitting in there. And I'm really <laughs> deeply starting to resent some people in my family for this, Scott. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Because I go, I'm like my daughter's in ski lessons at Whistler. So me and a, a bunch of friends end up skiing at Whistler every Saturday. And everybody goes for apres ski, goes for beers. And I obviously can't go and buy beers after skiing. Yeah. So it's like how many weeks in a row am I going to rely on somebody else oh, to just sort mooch. of go, hey, hey, don't worry, Scott, I'll get your beer this time. Because part of the, the stipulation in the bet was we wouldn't be able to say, guys, I can't go out because I have this bet. Uh, but if somebody buys me a beer, so we weren't able to say that. And Simi, I want to say, I'm, I'm glad that you have sort of admitted that you're close to breaking yes. because I went to the hockey game last night. <gasps> Wait a minute. How did you go to the hockey game last night? My brother's company got him tickets and okay, he's fair, like, he's fair, like a manager fair. at a company. So he had like club seats and stuff. He's like, do you want to go to the hockey game with me? I said, absolutely. That sounds like a great time. So he provided the tickets. He provided the parking. He picked me up when we walked upstairs before I could even say anything. He got the first round of drinks. Oh, you're so in debt to your brother right now. Many things had been lauded upon me and at a certain point, he was kind of like, should are we you, get... He are was, you out? He was like, should we get more beers? And I was kind of like, well, I don't really... I kind you of did. was... I ended up having to He's buy out. a round of beers. So Scott, I am officially just... out of the bat. <laughs> because here's and the thing. And then there were two. And then there Here, were two. Here's the other thing I want the audience to know about. Um, Scott and I have been sitting here at work this morning for almost two hours, and this is the first time that he admitted that this happened. So he was going not going I've been to tell biding us my about time. it. I've been biding my time. I've been waiting for the right moment. I had. I said to me, I pride myself on being honest. I wanted, I hoped that there was a moment that I would get to tell you on air like I'm doing right now to get an honest reaction out of you that Yes, I would never lie about it because First I just First of feel- all, you did the right thing. Yes. Because, yes, your brother absolutely, after treating you to all that, you needed to of say course. thank you and show your appreciation. How do I, no- how do I not, right? He's got the every all the things absolutely. and he got the first round. I was like, ah, I wasn't going to say to him, dude, I can't buy you beers because I have the silly bet. I am out. Okay. But the point is, I did save a lot of money and we realized how hard it is to save money, right? That's it is good. very hard to save money. It is hard to say no to those little things. Is there any way, like looking at your bank account, do you know how much money that you think roundabouts that you might have saved here? Because I'm looking at mine and I'm thinking it's at least a few hundred. It's, it's, I was it's gonna, a few hundred dollars. I was going to say a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. I think it's more. For me, I think it's probably like $300. Like I haven't done takeout. I yep. haven't, you know, stopped and bought a book for myself. I'm yeah. Saying, it's just those, those little things. I'm just going to pop in here and grab this. Oh, I see that shirt I kind of like. So if we're saying like, a couple hundred dollars and it's not yet the end of January and mm-hmm. we start at the beginning of January, I think that's pretty good. I would say so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm not ashamed to have lost the bet. I just wasn't the first person out and that's good. Well, I thank you because now I'm doubling down. <laughs> now that I've gotten rid of one more person. The thing. guy is rinsing out his shampoo bottles. I can't. I don't know if I can win. Shampoo. Even my husband says to me, why? You know you're not going to win this thing. I was like, no, I'm going to keep trying. Well, thank you for that, Scott, for your honesty. ended in the top 50%, Sydney. Whew, well okay. done. At least I'll call that a win. Thank you. you still in it. it on this one. Hey, have you been trying this? Like, what about your New Year's resolution? Are you still on that wagon or have you fallen off? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot to break down with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And what are you going to be doing this morning at 10 o'clock? 
Well, I guess I'm going to be paying attention to what's happening in Surrey, as I always seem to be doing. What's going Surrey on? Surrey forever. Yeah. But we're getting a technical briefing this morning with the administrator, Mike Sear. That's at 8.30 for the news media and then a full-blown... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Press conference, at, uh, news conference at 10 a.m.? And maybe, finally, some numbers we can take to the bank on the budget situation out there. This thing is coming along, and we're headed toward something in a month or two. Uh, they've got to nail down the budget out there. I think we've got to tell May, but probably be started out before that. Yes. So I'm really looking good. forward to listening in on this one. It's going to be interesting. It, well, it's good is it's finally some numbers, right? Finally yeah. putting things, rather than doing everything behind closed doors, which the city of Surrey has been doing, uh, and just putting these numbers out there and putting everybody on the defensive. Let's get these out there. Yeah, and you know, you did the interview with Mike Sarah just a little while ago where he said, yeah, there's a... <laughs> Surrey Police Service is over budget. Of course it is, because they were only given half a year's budget because the council and the mayor assumed that Surrey Police Service would be shut down and we'd go back to the RCMP. The province prevented that from happening. The Surrey Police Service is going ahead, and yes, it's going to need a budget top-up because it only has enough money to get it at the end of June. So I assume we're going to get more detail on that, but we'll see. Uh, man, oh man, there's nothing quite like Surrey out there for no uh, this dispute. No kidding. Okay, so that's coming up this morning, and I'm sure we'll be breaking that down this time tomorrow. Uh, right now, though, we also want to talk about an ongoing story that we have discussed. Interesting that here we were waiting for the government's response on that court decision, Vaughn, and it came kind of late, yes, very late yesterday. Yeah, late yesterday. Uh, the government, there isn't an awful lot of precedent for this kind of court appeal in BC, and I think that's one reason why it took the government so long to say what it's going to do. But uh, they announced yesterday afternoon that the province is going to go to the Court of Appeal to try to get the Court of Appeal to overturn the temporary injunction that the Chief Justice of BC Supreme Court had issued, had issued right at the end of last year, December 29th. So the Chief's decision was essentially a temporary injunction against the provincial law that tried to regulate open drug use in BC. So government put in legislation last fall. It said things like uh, no open drug use within 15 meters of a children's playground, no open drug use within six meters of a bus stop. A lot of people thought that sounded kind of reasonable. The chief justice did not agree. He said that law, those restrictions violated the constitutional rights of drug users. Um, controversial decision. I think it shocked the provincial government. First of all, there was a sense of disbelief in Victoria that that had happened. And we now see that disbelief reflected in the province's brief to the Court of Appeal. So the provincial government says that the chief uh, 
premature decision, uh, disregarded uh, the deference to the legislature based on lack of evidence, and they are asking the higher court to overturn the injunction. I think we can conclude from that that the province decided, uh, first and foremost, it doesn't want that decision to stand because even though it's only temporary, it goes to March 31st, the province, I think, was concerned that in a full-blown trial, there would be too much deference to the chief's decision, and that might make it very hard to defend the law, the broader law, in court when the full-blown appeal, uh, sorry, the full-blown court challenge goes ahead later this year. It's just such an interesting day. Like we've been waiting to get that decision from them. And then the day they did it was the day that the overdose numbers came out and they're terrible. Yeah, they are. Uh, I mean, it's not surprising because the chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe, told us that's the way things were headed late last year. She announced she was not seeking another term, that she'd be stepping down in February. But she also put out a warning release in February, uh, sorry, in December that the numbers were headed in the wrong direction. And were they ever? Last year, she was able to report that the death toll from poison drugs had dropped a bit. It had dropped uh, below 2,300. Uh, well, that was between 2021 and 2022, because uh, she reported this time last year on the results in 2022. Well, we now got the numbers for 2023, and they're as bad as she hinted there. We've gone up to 2,500, so it's the worst ever. And I have to say, it comes at a discouraging time for advocates of decriminalization and safer supply because next week is the first anniversary of British Columbia's experiment with decriminalization. And by the numbers, things are getting worse, not better. Talking with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun about the really shockingly high overdose numbers that coroner Lisa Lapointe uh, was talking about yesterday. Interesting to note, Vaughn, that she also had some comments about that open drug use law. Yeah, she said that she's read the Chief Justice's decision granting the injunction, and she thinks it's a very good, strong decision. You know, she says, um, yeah, I know it's uh, disturbing to see open drug use out there, uh, you know, but she says uh, we've had a big surge in homelessness and homeless people don't have a place to go, so they take drugs in the open air and... She says that what people need to ask themselves when they see open drug use is, does this actually threaten me? Does this actually harm me? She says she's seen no data that open drug use is actually threatening the health and safety of the public uh, or their children. Um, look, Simi, I have to say, when I heard her say that, I had a bit oh, of disbelief. I've got too. a lot of time for Lisa to point. I think we all should respect the work she's done and thank her for her public service. And I know it's a depressing story and a frustrating one. And I know she's well-informed. But, you know, when she says our politicians are driven by fear and lack courage, I mean, I think they're operating in the political real world. And... You know, you tell a parent that a person that 
it's unreasonable to restrict someone's ability to take drugs within 15 meters of a playground. <clears throat> I just think that, you know, you're, you're not thinking the way a parent does or a member of the public does. A bus rider, you can take drugs within six meters of a bus stop. I, I just think, you know, the, the thing I found myself saying toward the end of our news conference yesterday was, if you can't get an NDP government to do what you're advising, you know, you, you should be asking yourself, uh, what, what is, when do you think what you're are things get like done? in the real world? Yeah. Yeah. I asked her the question, too, about decriminalization. So the public was told that decriminalization was necessary to deal with the uh, problem of uh, rampant drug use and rampant deaths here in British Columbia, that decriminalization was one of the things that was going to help us turn the corner. Well, the numbers after a year are the opposite. It's getting worse. So I asked her, what could you point to that would actually be evidence that this is working? And she said, there's no data. Okay. <laughs> she said, right. we still have to stick with the experiment. I, I hear that. I understand that people are absolutely sure this is the way to go. She doubled down on her advice to the provincial government. Spend more money on treatment. Okay. More resources. Yes. Not... It, non-prescription access to drugs. So you don't need prescriptions anymore. That's a non-starter with the New Democrats as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the government, you know, the government's under attack from people who think they've gone too far. But I would say the New Democrats are trying to figure out how to walk the tightrope here and bring the public along with them. And frankly, hearing people being told that in decriminalization, the numbers are getting worse. People being told that basically open drug use anywhere is acceptable because anything less than that would violate the rights of drug users. I don't know. I this just is, think yeah. she's not recognized the realistic problem that politicians have, especially in an election year, bringing the public along with what is still an experiment that hasn't been adopted elsewhere. You know, if somebody were taking drugs in a home and a child was in that home, I think the government would consider that to be a concern to the safety of that child, right? If there was yeah. open drug use in a home. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. that's been the subject of child custody cases or family law and whatever, but apparently it's okay in a public space. Like, that's not a harm, too? Like, what yeah. if there are needles? What if, like, there's just, it's such a silo yeah. to, to say that, oh, there's no, there's no evidence of that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, the other thing that happened yesterday is we had the minister, Jennifer Whiteside, uh, reacting to this and right, thanking right, right, the right. point for her service and saying, you know, uh, the government's going to do more. And there's a press conference later today where the government's going to announce more resources. So, you know, fair enough. But it's interesting. Whiteside got asked twice yesterday about the news out of Oregon. So Oregon went first in decriminalizing. And when we decriminalized, a lot of people here said, hey, look what the Americans are doing. Well, Oregon is reverse direction. They're recriminalizing because they've had a huge open drug use and crime problem in particularly Portland. So Whiteside was asked about this. She was asked about it twice. She just didn't address it at all. She, no way is she going to talk about that. Uh, she was asked about the coroner's call for 
access to drugs without prescriptions. And again, clear she's not accepting it. She didn't really directly arrest that directly address that either. So, you know, I've got some sympathy for LaPointe on this. I, I think she's very well motivated and sincere, but I don't think she's helping the New Democrats sell what is already a controversial policy and an experiment that it is very hard to point to examples where the experiment is actually working. Yeah, they're not doing the whole idea of it any favors by kind of doubling down on uh, not recognizing kind of the, the bind that they're putting the government in here. So uh, we know that the government has said they're going to appeal. Do we know what the, how this works now, what this timeline is? And Well, the Court of Appeal usually takes these things up fairly quickly because the province is involved in it. And also the temporary injunction expires on March 31st. So I think the Court of Appeal will want to say something before that. Of course, uh, you know, you can always appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada as well. But no, I I think the appeal will go ahead. I expect that the uh, Nurses Harm Reduction Society, which won the case with a lawyer from Pivot Legal Society, David uh, Eby's old group, Uh, They'll be in court arguing to defend the decision by the the chief justice as well. So that'll be a major case, and it may set a precedent for future. As I said, the provincial um, position is that the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, acted prematurely uh, with a lack of evidence and based on a poor reading of higher court decisions that Judges ought to defer to Parliament unless they have, or in the legislature, unless they have a pretty good reason for not doing so. Right. And we should point out, this is a, this is rare, right, that this happens? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's rare. I mean, normally with a temporary injunction and the chief let it, you know, he only put it out to March 31st. Essentially, he invited the province to go to court, defend its law, which hadn't even been proclaimed yet, toughen up its regulation, and they could have brought in regulations to address the court's concern. And essentially, that was the way he pointed them. He wasn't killing their law permanently. He was saying, you're going to have a full-blown trial on this, and you can't enact the law or implement the law until then. Uh, The province didn't do it. Uh, They said, nope, uh, you know, we don't like this so much that we're going to try to get the temporary injunction overturned. So this is a a pretty high-stakes appeal that we're going to see Because, of course, if they lose the appeal, that will strengthen the chief's position that the law violates the rights of drug users. Right. Okay, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. It's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. There's some more to come on that. And, of course, as Vaughn mentioned off the top, too, there is that press conference this morning, a technical briefing, this involving policing in Surrey. Uh, So, yeah, there will be more to talk about on that front. More numbers. I shouldn't say more numbers. No, numbers. Uh, It would be great if we'd already had numbers. We don't. So we're actually going to get a detailed look, it sounds like, at the numbers that are being kind of cherry-picked by, uh, you know, the city of Surrey and the other side. So we will find out more about that this morning, and Vaughn and I will talk about it tomorrow. This is Mornings with Simi. What is happening in Colombia? Now, the country has had its ups and downs over the decades, but in recent years, I think the image was of a country that had, you know, overcome the worst of that reputation. And with that, of course, came the tourists and a real boom to that tourism industry. But now comes news of a troubling series of suspicious deaths in Medellin, leading to worries about the safety and security of foreigners. 
So what is going on there? Kendra Vias is the South American correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So what is going on? What are these troubling series of deaths that have been happening? So we, we don't have details on all of the, de- the deaths. However, there uh, we uh, just um, uh, days ago, uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, issued a very rare alert uh, for U.S. citizens to be extra uh, cautious uh, when in Medellin and taking extra precautions uh, on when using dating apps, which is uh, very common. Uh, Medellin, uh, for better or for worse, uh, over years has become a very popular hub for uh, sex tourism, not just sex tourism, but also in recent years has become a big hub for digital nomads, uh, especially since the uh, global pandemic. So you had this very important uh, increase in tourism and a certain kind of tourism, looking for parties and and, um, and uh, dates. Uh, and um, it's we, we've seen a, a alarming uh, rise in the number of attacks robberies, muggings against foreigners, and in many, many cases, we have uh, um, basically a trend where uh, men are looking for uh, Colombian women, they organize dates uh, through either dating apps or social media sites, and then they end up getting drugged, robbed, and in very extreme cases, uh, we've seen uh, several deaths, uh, which is like, you know, the uh, embassies uh, to you know advise extra caution. So you're saying this is so noticeable that it's happened so often that the embassy actually put out a warning about it. Exactly, exactly, and that that's pretty rare. Now uh, the other thing to also keep in mind to me, uh, kind of crime is that it's no, it's notorious for not being reported. Uh, so um, oftentimes, you know, people who are uh, victimized uh, by gangs or even individuals who just see an opportunity to rob, uh, uh, you know, an unsuspected traveler, um, uh, they often do not want to report it. And so it's almost um, the fact that we have reports of a very in- important increase in the number of deaths and also robbery reported robberies gives you a sense that um, that it, the, the the increase is probably way higher than what we are learning about through you know public uh, data. Yeah, is there a concern about this then in Colombia and the Colombian government as well, the concern that this might do damage kind of the hard-earned, more positive reputation that has happened over the last 10 years? Absolutely. I and mean, we, we, we've seen this um, issue addressed by a lot of uh, local authorities in Medellin. Uh, the mayor was pretty adamant uh, after the um, U.S. Embassy issued its alert to travelers. Um, the uh, mayor uh, was saying... Basically, you know, we want lots of foreigners to come here. I mean, this is what we weren't working for. Uh, and they have a lot to be proud of. I mean, the homicide rate is down like 97% from the 90s when uh, Medellin used to be a uh, global capital in the uh, uh, in, in the cocaine trade and it just turned into a war zone. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it, there's, the, the difference is night and day almost, you know, uh, from, from where the country was and where it has come. Now, a lot of uh, officials are afraid of losing and or tarnishing that image. And so um, they've been, with very strong words, uh, saying they don't want uh, sex tourists, uh, tourists looking for drug field parties. Um, They want people who are going to come work, digital nomads, and enjoy the 
uh, we have the perfect uh, spring climate all year round, and uh, you know it is a very beautiful city. And and so they, 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 as as they put it, they are looking for tourists who add value to our city. Right. So then, what is the government going to do about this? Then, because you're right, bad news spreads fast. Absolutely. So at the moment, the government has issued, uh, or at least has um, announced, a number of, of arrests, and this has been going ongoing for for months now. Uh, just last year, there have been. Uh, at least 50 different arrests of, 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 of suspected criminals in Medellin who were either luring men uh, uh, into these kinds of situations through fake profiles on dating apps. And, um, and even in recent days, uh, there's been a whole host of other arrests tied to some of these cases of Americans who've been, uh, uh, who fell victim to this. And so uh, there, there is a kind of a law and order uh, response for the moment. Um, there is a, a very big debate at the same time. I mean, uh, I've heard from a lot of longtime residents that they feel that, you know, the city really doesn't have that much of an interest in, um, while they obviously want to make it safer. I, I don't, there's a, a big debate over how much the city wants to crack down on things like sex tourism, because at the end of the, at, at the end, end of the day, it is a uh, big income generator and it does attract thousands and thousands of foreigners each year. It sounds very much like Colombia is kind of still struggling with like what to do with this almost kind of new reputation, right? Like this has got a bit of a crossroads, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, it, it, it's a really difficult situation also because prostitution is legal in Colombia. Um, pimping is not, but prostitution is. And uh, many drugs are, uh, you know, Either they're okay for recreational use, or uh, you know they're just kind of decriminalized uh, to a certain extent. And so uh, these are things that are kind of legal in in, in uh, at least in terms of like what people do in their private space and private time. And so uh, there is it, it's a difficult thing for uh, local authorities to tackle. Sure, sounds like it. Listen, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you. It's Keita Vias, who's a South America correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, talking about warnings uh, from the United States government for people from that country to travel to Colombia and some of the concerns that have happened there. Such uh, an interesting story when you think all, all the things that Colombia has gone through in the last 30 plus years. And now this too, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Can you imagine being able to actually converse with your pet? I know a lot of us would love to try to figure that out, right? When they look at you and they're staring at you and you think, what? What is it? What do you want? Wouldn't you love to be able to actually have them tell you? And that's about those bonds that you have with your pet too. Well, this might be closer than we realize because our Scott Shansa kind of took a dive into this question and here's what he found. A lot of talk about AI over the last year more recently, the last sort of six, eight months, AI has just exploded. A lot of people using it, talking about it, its implications, what the future looks like with AI. And how about this for one of the possibilities of what AI, artificial intelligence, is going to help us do? Understand what animals are saying. Like Dr. Doolittle. I can walk with the animals, talk with the animals. Grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. There are people that are already actively doing this, using AI to learn and analyze 
what chickens are saying. Enter Dr. Suresh Nitarajan. He's a researcher who is trying to make this happen, actually using AI to help us communicate with animals. And I straight up asked him, is this actually possible? Uh, at the moment, yes, partially. We are looking at interpreting what exactly is going on in terms of uh, the communication. How do they communicate among themselves? How do they express uh, content? satisfaction, frustration, not-so-happy moods through different vocalizations and use the variety of sensing technologies, thermal cameras, four-dimensional cameras, and sound acquisition to collect a variety of data. And then uh, use deep learning and what we call as natural language processing techniques to decode what is it that they are uh, trying to communicate, unraveling a variety of emotions or the cognition behind these birds. So we look at what we call as MFCCs, Mel Frequency Substal Coefficient, basically frequency, amplitude, pitch, tone, and the gap between these uh, vocal calls, and try to deduce, okay, what's going on. We also try to develop a translator that would help us to un- improve the welfare of the quality and the richness of the life of these birds, Uh, when they go through their animal husbandry uh, period. Now, what is the goal here as it relates to these animals, to chickens? What is the goal with understanding them? We have the ability to understand the communication so that provide a much more uh, uh, enhanced quality of life. At the same time, it concerns about improving the profitability for the farmers. The happy chicken is a productive chicken and the meat quality and the eggs are also much more nutritious and rich. We use artificial intelligence to uh, create a much more bonding and a quality of richness in terms of the interaction between the farmers as well as the farm animals. Now, if this works, what are the potentials for other applications. What about with dairy cows or other type of service animals like potentially seeing eye dogs? Is there potential there to apply this to other animals and other species? Absolutely. The tremendous potential. We have already started collecting data for the dairy cows also. So there is a bit of uh, research already happening from our group. Uh, the same can also be uh, applied for companion animals, such as cats and dogs. You know, just the purr of the uh, uh, cat or uh, by looking at small little whining of the, uh, you know, dogs, uh, depending on the breed, we can have a better understanding. We could say, hey, don't sit on my couch. It's couch is only for humans. You sit here. Those kind of uh, communication can be made to provide a better uh, um, uh, exchange of quality of richness between the humans and uh, companion animals. Okay, so this all seems pretty cool, right? An actual plausible way for us to communicate with our pets. But as with all things artificial intelligence, has anyone actually stopped to think if this is something that we really want? I mean, sure, there are lots of benefits for farmers. And the idea of being able to talk to your own furry loved one does seem pretty great, but could there also be a downside? Or does knowing that we could clearly communicate with our animals sort of remove some of the mystique and some of that language of love? Perhaps all of this is something better just left to the movies. Speak! Hi there! (gasps) Did that dog just say hi there? Oh yes! Bruh! 
My name is Doug. I have just met you, and I love you. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel! For Mornings with Simmy, I'm Scott Shantz. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I love that, Scott. Right? It's so funny. Isn't it great? What if we could actually have that? You put a collar on your dog, Listen. and it can tell you what it's thinking. No, thank you. Right? My it- cat has no problem telling me exactly what she is See, thinking. See, you're in that, you're one of those people, Simi, like all of us. We I know. think we know what they're saying, but are you sure? Oh, I, oh please. <laughs> My cat, um, she views us with disdain. Like if she has to lower herself to communicating with me, it's usually <laughs> why, and I'm sure it involves a lot of swear words. Right. Why the blank, isn't there more food in my dish? Why, why are you just standing there looking at me? Do you not see I want to go outside? Why are you making me wait here? Open the door so I can come inside. Like she's... Her facial expression tells me everything I need to know. Right. So maybe we just best leave this to the farmers who are producing, you know, they, they need it for, you know, production reasons. Sure. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll go with that. I have one dog who all he thinks about is food. Right. And the, another dog who just wants, like, that dog attention. Squirrel. All the time. Why are you looking at me? Why aren't you looking at me? Right. Why aren't you looking at me? That's the other dog. I so, think yeah. it's kind of fun. I think I've solved it. Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. <laughs> you can weigh in with your thoughts. Like, do you want to know what your dog or cat is thinking? I feel like most pet owners, if you're close to your pets, you know that already, right? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is part of our health series. We're going to talk about endometriosis. Like, what do you know about this? My guess is unless you have it or a loved one does, you do not know enough about endometriosis. It's a chronic condition. It is painful, potentially impacts 1 million people in Canada. So why isn't it better known? Why isn't it talked about more? Well, joining us now is Dr. Catherine Allaire, Medical Director of the BC Women's Centre for Pelvic Pain and Endometriosis and Head of UBC's Division of Gynecologic Specialties Dr. Allaire, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. Why don't we talk more about endometriosis? Well, first, the word is really horrible to say. Uh, but no, the, re- the reason that uh, endometriosis has really not fallen into the darkness is a number of factors. Basically, the symptoms that you've described for many, many uh, years, centuries, have been uh, taboo to speak about. So pain, pelvis, menstruation, uh, infertility, these are all subjects below the belt that are difficult to discuss. Uh, secondly, there's been uh, this widespread you know, normalization of women's pain that's been going on for, again, a long time that we're trying to change as well. So uh, when people speak up and say they have pain, they've been dismissed, they've been told it's just a normal women's problem or no, it's just a normal period, it'll get better, and they don't really get their problems dealt with or diagnosed. And so uh, there's also a lack of awareness and education in our primary care providers about this condition, which these are all modifiable things that we're trying to work on improving for the awareness of endometriosis. And I know that one of the problems, Dr. Lair, as well, is, to, is if someone goes to the doctor and talks about their symptoms. Is, is that where the disconnect kind of begins? Is it describing the pain? Is it the doctor saying, oh, okay, I, I, this could be endometriosis? Well, I think we've worked hard on increasing awareness in the, in the last you know, dozen years. And so now I think more, our primary care providers may think about endometriosis. Uh, part of the reason is that there's no uh, non-invasive diagnosis for the majority of, of patients that have endometriosis. So some if you do imaging such as ultrasound or MRI, you might see something, but the, the, that's the minority of cases. And the majority, there's really no blood test or imaging that will say definitively. So we've kind of pushed to 
have an awareness and really start with the clinical diagnosis or a suspicion of endometriosis based on symptoms so that patients can be treated sooner and get relief of their symptoms. Is, is, are things improving in this area, like even us talking about it today? I think that, you know, the media awareness has been there more recently. There's lots of high-profile uh, uh, actors that have come out and said that they have it. So every time that happens, there's a flurry of interest. And uh, certainly social media has been very helpful. Uh, those taboos seem to be less present in social media. Many influencers will talk about menstruation and pain, etc. cetera. Uh, it doesn't mean that they really know what, you know, what their followers should do about it, but there's certainly a conversation that's happening. And that's changing things for sure. What about in the uh, treatment side of things? Like, are we devoting more time and resources to helping with deal with the pain? Well, it's still inadequately low in terms of how much money is being spent on this condition compared to other conditions. Endometriosis is thought to affect about one in 10 reproductive age women and, and gender diverse people. And so considering how big the amount of people is that have it, uh, the amount of money that's going to it is woefully inadequate in, you know, in Canada, in the U.S., in the world. Uh, we're trying to change that. Uh, there's been so lots of advocacy being done in the last few years to increase awareness, but also to pressure our you know, leaders to put money into the research. And, and I think that we're starting to see the needle move a little bit. We've been invited to talk at the House of Commons on Reproductive Health uh, Committee about endometriosis, and, and certainly uh, there's been some recent funding to awareness initiatives for uh, a couple of groups in Canada, so that's very encouraging. There's other effects of this too, isn't it? It's not just the actual condition and the pain that that causes. Uh, what are some of the kind of spin-off effects of endometriosis? Well, endometriosis, because it can start affecting patients at a you know, young age, like teenage years, can really affect the life course of that patient's uh, journey essentially can affect their education pathways by making it more difficult for them to complete the schooling they want. It can affect their job uh, choices. It can affect their relationships because, you know, sexual pain and chronic pain are often uh, associated with endometriosis. It can also impact their ability to get pregnant, have children. So it really impacts all of society, not just the patients that are suffering with endometriosis, but they're Everybody around them and as a society as a whole, we get impacted by the lack, the decreased productivity potentially of these, of these, of these patients as well as um, the decreased um, quality of life that they have. What do we know about why it, it does manifest? Like, how, how do people get it? That's, well, there's a lot of research that's now being done on that. And then we've had a number of theories. The, the dominant theory at the moment is still the uh, ectopus, the presence of cells that are usually lining the uterus that wind up, <clears throat> that wind up in uh, areas outside of the uterus. Um, we think that the initiating factor is a common phenomenon, which is what's called retrograde menstruation, where the cells that, you know, that normally come out through the vagina, go backwards and into the abdominal cavity. These normally get cleared by most people, but in some people, they may be allowed to grow and implant. And there's a number of immune factors and inflammatory factors that are likely related to that, as well as genetic factors. So that's where the work is being done. There's other, other theories as well that, that come up occasionally, and, and, but for now, the dominant one is this one. Yeah. Okay, so the work at the clinic that sounds like it's being done is quite revolutionary. 
We have a very active research program, also a clinical program uh, that's been around for 13 years. So we're very privileged to have had great support for that program. The clinical program includes uh, interdisciplinary care for chronic pain. So we have allied health with us, psychologists and and, uh, physiotherapists that work with the gynecologist to help with the pain and the quality of life aspects of the of the condition. But we also have a very um, very uh, thorough and um, fulsome research program, and we have to thank our patients for that because all the patients that get uh, referred to us are invited to be part of our research, and the majority do agree to be part of our our research. And so that's helped us to develop a huge database of endometriosis patients and lead to some, you know, discovery both in the genetics of endometriosis, but also in what the best treatments could be, what's the best way to help uh, endometriosis patients. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Happy to be here. That's Dr. Catherine Allaire, Medical Director of the BC Women's Centre for Pelvic Pain and Endometriosis and Head of UBC's Division of Gynecologic Specialties. This is Mornings with Simi. The hockey world is just full of talk today about that 2018 Men's World Junior team here in Canada. So police in London, Ontario, have been investigating allegations of a sexual assault by members of that team. Now, this story has a long, complicated history, but as of this morning, seems to finally be headed to court. The Globe and Mail broke this story yesterday. Police say five players have been told to surrender to face charges in this case. Now, Globe and Mail reporter Robin Doolittle has been covering the story for years. She broke this story yesterday and joins us now to talk more about it. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. This story that you have in the Globe and Mail that dropped yesterday, but it feels like it dropped a bit like a like a, a bomb. Tell us what is happening. What do we know at this point about the situation? So what we know is that the London police have asked five members of the 2018 gold medal winning junior hockey team to surrender themselves uh, to London police headquarters to face charges of sexual assault. And this is kind of this, as you mentioned, massive development in a story that has played out over more than five and a half years. Yeah, let's talk about the timeline here. So why now? How did it get to this point where now we are seeing these kinds of developments? Yeah, I mean, I say five and a half years because this is when it occurred and there were events that were happening, a police investigation uh, in, in that ended in 2019, but the public didn't know about it. The public found out about this in 2022. TSN broke a story that the complainant in this case, a woman who is known as EM, um, filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada, the CHL, and uh, as many as eight unnamed players on this team, alleging that she had been essentially gang-raped in a hotel room in London following a um, Hockey Canada gala. That's 2022. Uh, The police reopened the investigation amid kind of a fire from a public scrutiny in August of that year, And it's been playing out since, you know, more than a year ago, police filed a court application for various investigative measures, get approval from a judge. And in that application, police said that they believe there were reasonable grounds to believe that the players had committed sexual assault. So it's been a year since then. Um, And as for why, I mean, I think we're still trying to figure that out. But we do know that one thing that happened uh, is the Crown, who was kind of teed up to take the case. Um, left the role and they had to find a new crown. 
um, and that caused some delays last year. Right, because now all of a sudden we've seen this kind of cavalcade, this avalanche of, of, of you know, consequences as a result of this. Because we still they they're not naming the players here. And when are they going to have a press conference about this? Yeah, London Police have given the players till around the end of next week to present themselves at headquarters, and then they're going to schedule a press conference for the Monday, February five. Um, the, the names probably will not be, a, like, well, I would say it is very safe bet to say that we're not going to get um, a public confirmation of the names from authorities until there are formal charges laid, which is very standard. Right. Standard in the kind of criminal side of things, not so much on the sports side of things, because it, it does feel very much like the hockey world is reeling from this. Robin, do you get that sense? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've been writing about this for a long time now. And I can say that with yesterday's story, my inbox is full of messages and media requests trying to find out more from like, truly around the world. Uh, I mean, certainly huge interest in the States, Europe, because these involve uh, you know NHL players. And there's consequences for NHL teams. And uh, I think that many people thought this maybe wasn't going to happen. I, here it is. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought this wasn't going to happen because so much time had gone by. Okay, so what has Hockey Canada had to say? Uh, Hockey Canada's, you know, saying nothing. They're saying that they cooperated, and I mean, I mean, like nothing new in relation to the to the news from yesterday. Like they're they're kind of just saying that you know they've always cooperated with police, and that's that. That just seems there was no grand quote from them. I guess <laughs> we can say when we went to them for comment yesterday, right? And you've covered this for years now, Robin. Have you seen any indication at Hockey Canada that anything has kind of changed in their attitude towards talking about this, or in terms of of has anything really changed in improving the situation for how they deal with cases like this? I don't know if I if it's fair to say at this point. I mean, I think. The fact that we're asking the question is a bit of an answer that, you know, it's not just a resounding uh, feeling of change. Um, the, you know, Hockey Canada did its own investigation of this. They then provided the results of that investigation to a panel, uh, to an outside panel to determine next steps. That outside panel then reached its own final report conclusion on that, and that ended last year. Uh, but then someone has said that they want to appeal the findings of this non-binding external panel, so they haven't released anything. So we have no idea, really, how Hockey Canada is going is dealing with this internally. It's all under the guise of process of, of how things are moving along. Right. Is that, do you think, Robin, what makes this case so frustrating for the general public and, and for you covering this in that all this time has gone by and yet we still can't seem to get a kind of a fulsome explanation of what happened and, and why we're even here? I mean, I think that we have a pretty good idea of what happened the night of the incident uh, between EMC statement of claim and then this police document that they filed it's 94 pages it goes it summarizes the interviews with the the players the witnesses and the accused it summarizes interviews with em it, it includes uh, outside investigative narratives and details what i think we don't have a clear picture of is what was happening at hockey canada during that time um you know it, in particular we know that at someone at hockey canada uh, told one of the players that EM had gone to police. And the player then contacted EM and said, did you go to police? You need to make this go away. I think that raises real uh, questions. And and so we don't really know, you know, what was happening within this really prominent sporting organization when they're facing this huge crisis. 
Okay, still more questions. So what um, what questions do you still have that you are kind of digging into over the next weeks while we wait for more information from the police? I mean, I think that there will be questions, again, on the Hockey Canada front. I think that we are, you know, the, the globe is being, because the stakes are so high, just really cautious around the um, identifying the players and letting mm-hmm. the process, you know, get to a point where we feel comfortable um, so that will obviously be a big question. And I think there's lots of questions about the NHL. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. More, more to come. Well, I look forward to reading about it. Robin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Robin Doolittle, reporter with the Globe and Mail newspaper. She has been on this story, oh, for years now, and she broke the news yesterday. You can read it at globeandmail.com about the latest on this case. This is that five members of Canada's 2018 World Juniors hockey team have now been told to surrender to police and they are set to face charges. And this is all in relation to the alleged group sexual assault that happened in London, Ontario. And so, as mentioned, you can read the full report there. Now, I know Global News has also reached out to police, has reached out to uh, lawyers to get, you know, to talk more about this case. We're all kind of waiting for more information. The players have not been charged yet, but they have been given a set period of time to present themselves to police in London, Ontario. And so we'll see what happens with that. Here's what we also know. Like nobody has actually come out and said these are the players that are involved in this. But several players who were members of that team have taken indefinite leaves of absence from their NHL teams in recent days. And those statements have been made publicly, but still no kind of confirmation on that. So, again, this is a developing story. And I know people want to see what happens next uh, because we've all, I think, been following this story for years now. This is Mornings with Simi. I think a lot of us feel kind of intimidated by the healthcare system, right? It's hard to navigate, hard to make sure that you aren't being overlooked, that what ails you is getting looked after properly. And many of us, you know, feel that we are being overlooked, I think, in the system. We feel that we fall between the cracks. It's a tough relationship. And for the Indigenous community, it can be even tougher. So there is a lot of work being done in the area of Indigenized healthcare. So I thought, let's find out what that means. Joining us now is Dr. Krista Stilkaya, co-director of the Center for Collaborative Action on Indigenous Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Stilkaya, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So what does it mean when we say indigenized healthcare? Absolutely. So when we look at the healthcare system, we're in a space where we're really trying to make it more culturally safe, more equitable, and more accessible to indigenous communities we continuously see that there remains high levels of inequities that exist within Indigenous communities. And oftentimes that is, you know, pared down to looking at systems that are historically been very unsafe for Indigenous people to access. So it's very important to redesign and relook at these systems in a way that is culturally safe and equitable, not only for Indigenous people, but for a lot of other Canadians as well. So do we mean like of the historical mistrust has kind of bled into the healthcare system? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at uh, the history of research and healthcare within Canada, there has been, you know, a dark, ch- a, a dark chapter within our history. And so there is a need to kind of look and see how is healthcare being administered? You know, how are physicians and nurses supporting uh, patients and kind of looking at that experience more critically. And so how do we do that then? How do we address those things? Absolutely. So through high quality research. So 
you know, scientific research is really at the foundation of health innovation and really about transforming current uh, research processes to help improve health outcomes. So I think that there's a real opportunity to kind of take it very back to the foundational level of let's produce high quality research that will really transform our systems and doing that in a good way that's ethical and aligned with Indigenous worldviews and values. Right. At some, at some point, you have to ask people to just have some trust, right, that you're making that effort. That must be very challenging. I mean, it is challenging. I think, you know, the statistics are there that there continues to remain gaps in service, that there are experiences of discrimination when accessing healthcare, And so um, in looking at all the foundational reports that have been produced, um, this is a really um, innovative time and in being able to look critically at our systems and saying, hey, are we doing the best thing here? Let's really try to work together to try and make the system more culturally safe for everyone. Okay, so how are you doing this then? So you ask for health research submissions in the field of Indigenous care? Yeah, so, you know, going back to scientific research being the foundation of health innovation, um, you know, universities um, and other organizations are actively conducting research within BC to try and address some of the health inequities. And so um, a project that I am leading is really meant to look at you know, the very foundational um, ethical procedures of how that research is being conducted. So the goal of my project is to improve and advance Indigenous health research ethics practices and protocols in BC to be more culturally safe and grounded in Indigenous knowledge systems. And essentially, the outcome of this project is really meant to shape the guidelines and frameworks that oversee and guide uh, health research ethics and health research within the province of BC. Has this been done before? So there has been, you know, lots of developments in terms of trying to make health research more culturally safe and equitable. Um, however, this is one of the first times in BC that we're actively taking a critical look in collaboration with our partners. So oftentimes in research, um, it's often researchers who are doing most of the work. However, my project, um, I'm partnered with many uh, BC provincial organizations, um, such as the First Nation Authority, such as Health Research Ethics BC, uh, the Office of the Provincial Health Officer. And so these organizations um, are part of this project because they see it as extremely meaningful in terms of being able to transform the way uh, health research is conducted within uh, BC. Dr. Silkai, how important is consistency on this, right? Because this is a great idea, as you say, it's a pilot study, but I think people need to be able to trust, right, that this is something that we are doing for good. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the foundation of research is we want it to be done in an ethical way. And this particular project is looking at the guidelines that researchers use to conduct that research in a really good way. And so it's really the backbone of producing high quality evidence and research, which will be used to develop interventions in hospitals, which will be used to assess what are some of the challenges and gaps that exist within health equity. So essentially, ethics really is the backbone and uh, to high quality research. And that's the purpose of this project is to make sure that backbone is very strong. Okay, so what kind of research do we think might come from something like this? Like what might get looked at that wasn't looked at before? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things uh, about this particular project is because ethical guidelines and research have been often viewed and uh, developed using a Western framework, they've often ignored Indigenous perspectives on health research. And so one big component of this project is we're taking a distinctions-based lens. 
which essentially means that uh, we're acknowledging the specific rights, interests, priorities of distinct Indigenous groups. So rather than, you know, labeling all Indigenous people as having the same unique experience, we're actually looking at the unique experience of First Nations peoples, Inuit peoples, as well as Métis peoples distinctly to see, are they having the same experience when they're engaging in research as participants and trying to really uh, drill down and leverage and support uh, Indigenous communities who have their own ethical guidelines and protocols as well, and to integrate those guidelines into the current uh, mainstream health research system. But it's so hard sometimes to change the healthcare system, isn't it, Dr. Sokai? Like, it's so huge. How do you, how do you make sure that the work will have an influence? Absolutely. I mean, it's a long road in terms of being able to really transform health systems to be more equitable, but every step of the way requires its own due diligence. It requires important ethical lines. And so my research is really meant to support the production of high quality research to really help to change and transform the systems. And so that's the real important take home note here. Okay, so then how can people get involved in this if they hear this and they think, well, I have an idea I'd like to get research into, like, how does this work? Yeah, absolutely. So for our particular project, like it's a three-year project and we will be conducting interviews uh, within the province of BC on kind of what are the gaps, barriers, and experiences. So really learning about kind of the current ethics system and seeing how it works. And then we will be co-creating solutions to help support and advance Indigenous health research ethics. So in terms of um, being able to utilize the knowledge, um, we will be producing reports and outcomes which will help to advance uh, research ethics for researchers. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. All right, thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Krista Stelkaya, co-director of the Center for Collaborative Action on Indigenous Health Governance at Simon Fraser University.